Hello, and we are the Makers of History. With me, Foz, and Ross. Say hello, Ross. Hello, everybody. How you doing, bro? Happy New Year, the end of the festive period. Happy New Year to you. What's your resolution? Ah. Oh. No, don't have any. No, no. Didn't think of that. What's your resolution? <laughs> no. Plus, the same as mine, it's mine. I got a fucking resolution. Yeah, have a better time. I am fucking setting my ways. I'm not changing shit. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> I know that feeling very much, mate. Very much so. Cheers to that, mate. Cheers to that. Yeah, so how was the Christmas period? It was all good. Yeah, I mean, I spent most of it just kind of asleep and hungover, which is fantastic. Yeah. We saw each other was... as well just before Christmas, yeah. which was nice, didn't we? That's a Brucey bonus, yeah. yeah. Yeah, nice. I'm sure Christmas. Yeah, yeah, pretty good, mate. Pretty good. It's all a distant memory, though, isn't it? Now I'm all back in, <laughs> ready to work again. It was lovely, mate. Lovely and quiet and chilled. I had to work a couple of days over the period, so on the the Thursday and Friday before the weekend before New Year, but which ain't great. It was dead quiet, though, to be fair. Yeah. So, uh, like like many people, I guess, I sat there doing all my online training. You know, then training portals you get, and you've just got like hours of like, health and safety training and stuff. Ugh. I had to do like one of those how to drive a car trainings. It's like, I literally have a driving license. Like, why am I doing this? Boy, who made you do that? Uh, I had to do it from work. Like, no way. Because we have company cars, and it's like, you have to do this training to show that you're familiar with the law and shit. Okay. <laughs> But yeah, it's like proper, like, this week has been the first week back. It's been like, you know, at the start of 28 days later when Killian Murphy wakes up in the hospital and just walking around London? Yeah. <laughs> it's been like that. Oh, such a good film. I seen that in ages. <laughs> good film. Nice. So what are you drinking then, bro? I can see you there slurping around something. Yeah, so I'm on the Cozelle Jack Classic. Mm. One of my favourite tipples. It's a good tipple. Yeah, I do like a Cozelle. Cozal's like just a classic proper Czech drink. The mm. it's everywhere in the capital, and it absolutely anywhere, everywhere. Yeah, it's you can get it basically anywhere you go. Yeah, but not it's, in the UK. You can't. We only ever it on top of one place, and it just it was not the same. Yeah, I've seen it a few places in the UK, but I I seriously doubt it's like actually made in Czech Republic. Cause it I must be. It tastes honestly. It tastes different. Yeah. Don't know if it's the temperature or the amount of gas in it, or it, it's a different recipe. They're probably know. making it in the UK. Yeah, maybe under license. Mm. Not very. Nice. you, what have you got? I'm on the I'm on the whiskey again, bro. Glenlivet Caribbean Reserve single malt Scotch whiskey. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm classy and all. People forget <laughs> that. People often forget how fucking classy I am, mate. I am a classy chap. I'm gonna. Uh, a bit more whiskey in there. Oh. Little bubbling sound, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, we had a little bit of problems to the listeners with the last two episodes. We had some technical difficulties. Uh, so it seems like we might have overcopied season uh, episode eight of this episode. We've put it all right. It's all fixed. It's all working again now. But yeah, if you had any problems listening to the Christmas episode, um, basically the long and short of it is we finished the Christmas episode. I was steaming. I was so big. Like, <laughs> I went back and listened to it. Right? And I'm, bl- I'm, sl- I'm, I'm like slurring my words right at the start of it. So i have been drinking all day though, I think, hadn't I? I think yeah, I think drinking. that's how that came about. Yeah, yeah. um, so yeah, so maybe I made a mistake and I did something by accident. Who knows? What's happened, what's happened, but it's all working now. It's all So yeah, if you were tuning into an episode expecting to hear about the Battle of Britain and the invasion of Norway and you got something about medieval Czech kings <laughs> <laughs> you can go back now and you will actually hear what you were going for. Yeah. The good episodes, go back and give them a listen, they're fun. Yeah. That was a really good one though, I was I like that. I like the Christmas one. I don't remember much of it though. <laughs> we were pretty trashed. <laughs> yeah. How oh, nice. So, off the back of that light, cheerful episode. Are we doing something lovely, lot and cheerful again today, Ross? Uh, no, no, we're not. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what we're going to do today is going to talk about like the the expansion of the war into Eastern Europe, basically. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, this is going to involve touching like for the first time really on Nazi genocide. Okay. So we're going to be talking about the Holocaust and genocidal policies. Um, so consider this as a bit of a content warning for people listening. It's you know not like all genocidal episode, but it's there's going to be a few 
darker and heavier moments, um, which can try and treat with the seriousness that they deserve. Yeah. Um, as part of a coping mechanism for this, we also discussed how we're going to deal with it because, like, obviously, talking about it is depressing oh, man. It's and depressing hard. as fuck, and it? like it's actually some of them hard eating episodes we do. It's like after the episode, we've both been bummed out, haven't we? Yeah. It's like so much fucking raw shit. So because this is a different level of heaviness compared to anything we've done before, what we've decided is to try and lighten the tone in the most difficult moments is we'll follow those up with a sort of little trivia chat amongst ourselves about our some of our favourite stuff. Yeah, all so. the fun stuff from war. Not the killing <laughs> and the death, but the machines and vehicles used to do so. Yeah, so we'll have our little you know technological top trumps yeah. moment. Um, so yeah, so with that said, let's go into it. So what should always be remembered is the Nazis were very serious when they talked about living space, Lebensraum, and the desire for land. And I think sometimes people get this like impression because they have this fixation about like you know the ideal like. German medieval peasant society and stuff like this, mm. that they see them as being backward and kind of a, a throwback to the past. And we shouldn't see them in this way. Um, what do you mean people see them as a throwback to the past? <clears> or <throat> just their way of doing things? Or like the old, they're old school. Uh, if you think about how, like, you know, in games and films where, like, you know, the Nazis are like living in castles and yeah, yeah. idolizing peasant life and that sort of yeah. thing, there is some of that in there. But that isn't all of it and like the idealising peasants isn't just them being super like um, conservative like reactionary wanting to go back to the past the Nazis are a very modern movement um, and that hunger for land and resources isn't just a Nazi thing like this has been driving European expansion for 200 years by this point well yeah everyone was at it weren't they exactly you know like British and French empires are driven by desire for land and resources. Also expansion of the United States into um, the western mm-hmm. part of North America. So the Nazis aren't exactly an outline. It's not exactly that weird that they're looking for land. It's kind of like that they're doing it kind of after the time for that grab to begin as, as kind of ended. So they're kind of at the very tail end of that European expansion but in and of itself the desire for land isn't that weird. Mm. There's also a very practical element to this, and the reason why their ideology focuses on land so much, which is everybody in the Nazi party has lived through the First World War. Or all of the senior people, right? Yeah. Anyone over the age of, like, 40 was an adult during the First World War. Yeah. Anyone over the age of about 25 will have memories. Everybody in Germany during the First World War experienced genuine hunger, because Britain's war strategy was to blockade Germany, right? Yeah. So there was shortage of food in Germany and in 1916, 1917. People had been starving, like 600,000 people in Germany starved to death as a result of the blockade of Germany. And then they've also lived through you know, the, the Great Depression, they've lived through the economic crisis. People have known not having food on yeah. their plates. So land hunger makes a lot of sense in the context. And we've got to remember as well, like from the American and British side, they literally have whole continents of food available to them. Like, you know, the whole American interior is just food producing. Yeah. The British have turned Australia and Canada into, like, these food producing uh, spaces. So they don't have the same fear of hunger. They always have food available. Even France as well. Again, it has an empire and it has a lower density population. It doesn't have, like, these huge sprawling cities crammed in on each other. For the Nazis, they saw the redistribution of how, where food comes from as essential. Um, because what they saw the risk is that Germany would have to be importing food and then exporting stuff to pay for the food, right? And that would mean like finding a place in a global economic system. And remember, Nazi ideology views everything through this lens of Jewish conspiracy. Yeah. So it means making Germany into a cog in this Jewish machine if they become an importer-exporter. Mm-hmm. so for them the idea about controlling the food is really important because everything comes through this lens of Jewish conspiracy theory the farming community in Germany very very strongly pro-Nazi the only districts where the Nazis were winning majorities in the elections were like the most rural 
agricultural areas. So it's kind of, there's a feedback loop as well. Like Nazi supporters are from the land and the Nazis care about the land. Okay. There's two kind of key players in this. I'm going to mention a few times. The first of them is a guy named Walter Dare, who is the agriculture minister. And he represents kind of one side of Nazism, like this mystical history driven side of the Nazis, like the dressing up and hanging around castles aspect. Yeah. He's very close to Heinrich Himmler. All the all the Hugo Bosque, all that black leather stuff that they had. All of that and all like you know, like the Nazi occultism and all that yeah, sort of shit. Yeah. Like Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> You know, he's really into, like, his history about, like, you know, the H Germanic tribes mm. and all of this sort of thing. And the way that he sees German history is that the good natural German is a peasant, a son of the soil, like, you know, digging his earth. And the enemy of the German peasant is the nomad. Like, you know, like, you go back to, like, Hunnic horse yeah, yeah. people and stuff. And, of course, the Jews, because they don't have a homeland, so they're nomadic and travelling and... yeah. Obviously. And Dare believes that there's a conspiracy by the Jews going back to the 16th century to break the connection of the Germans from the land and to move them into the cities. Okay. (laughs) And that this should cause the birth rates to decline and it's the Jews deliberately trying to cause the extinction of the German people. Wow, okay. Smart Jews. Yeah. Yeah. What an enemy to have. (laughs) The mystical Jew. There's there's uh, a, a joke. There's like two Jews and there's one reading a Nazi newspaper. The other one says, "Why are you reading that?" And he goes, "I want to read about how powerful and strong we are." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the other fellow to be aware of from this is a guy named Herbert Bakker, and he's kind of the assistant to Dare, the agriculture minister, and he represents a kind of different strand of Nazism. And he sees, like, you know, imperialism, i.e. British and French Empire building and their liberal free trade as, like, the enemy. So we have, like, Walter Dare has this more traditional thing of, like, the connection to the land, whereas Herbert Bakker, he sees the modern world as the enemy. And he sees it, the, you know, empire and free trade is, again, the Jews using the British Empire to destroy traditional societies. And he... Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and the idea being, like, you know, like, peasant agriculture, traditional societies in places like India have been torn apart and replaced by, like, you know, cash crop plantations. So you think of India being turned into growing cotton mm-hmm. and um, dyes and this sort of stuff, which had caused massive famines in India from oh, the yeah. century onwards. So there is an element of truth in the idea. Like, these cash crop economies came into... Uh, colonies and they ripped apart the way of yeah, life and so the Indian went from being so. <laughs> exactly that's the thing they can't criticise or view anything without this like prism of the Jews being involved hmm. and it's always everything has to be controlled by the Jews for them to understand anything but you know imperialism definitely did have this effect in India like people started starving to death in India which they had not done before the British took control hmm. but yeah as you say it's not the Jews, it's British imperialism. They didn't need any help from the Jews to do it. You know? No, no. <laughs> so this idea of Liebendraum, the desire for land, desire for living space, should be taken very literally. And again, Germany literally did not have enough farmland. It didn't have colonies, it had 80 million people, and it had a lot of people still living on the land. I mean, it's a point we've made before, like, you know, Britain has a tiny, tiny part of the population living on the land. Germany, a lot of people still live there. In terms of land per farmer, the com- the comparison for Germany is a country like Bulgaria or Romania, not a country like Britain or France. Yeah, okay. They haven't modernised their farming. They don't have these, like, economies of scale that happen in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. And it's also a massively unequal distribution of land. Like, 0.2% of the farms own 25% of the land. Oh, okay. Because these are these huge aristocratic estates, especially yeah. in Prussia, in the east. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the people aren't, don't actually own them. These are, like, just fancy bigwigs that own all the land. Exactly. Like, Prussian aristocrats who've 
you know, their pe- their ancestors were some medieval crusader. Mm. They've acquired this land, and then it's gone down ever since. The Agriculture Ministry estimated you needed 20 hectares per farmer to allow a decent standard of living, like enough the farmer can grow his own food and have a surplus to sell. Mm-hmm. 88% of farmers were below that. Mm. So most of them were just scratching enough to survive and nothing more. So, I mean, one obvious solution is break up these massive fuck-off estates that control 25% of the land. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and this had its appeal. The nationalists, like the really like you know hardcore German nationalists, liked the idea. And it's a way of moving people into the eastern territories to balance out the large Polish minority in Prussia. Mm-hmm. Thing is, those are like Prussian aristocrats, not massively in favour of you doing that to their estates. And yeah, I bet they're not who, happy about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and would you like to take a guess which side of the political spectrum that Prussian aristocrats come down on? <laughs> they're for the people, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously socialists, massive socialists. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so that's part of Hitler's power base. He can't antagonise or upset them. Especially the army is full of these class of people. Yeah, of course they're called the um, so we can't antagonise them. Are these the Yonkers that are to do with, uh, like, J.U.? Uh, that's a family name, but it's probably related. It means, like, Young Lord or something Yeah, like because that. there's a base, there's an aircraft manufacturer in Germany called Junkers, J, all the planes J.U., aren't they? Yeah. Like J.U. And 88, J.U. 87. J.U. sounds for Junkers. Yeah, and it's the... the it's a family company that owned it, and they, I can't remember his first name, but basically... When Barry. The Nazis... <laughs> Barry Junkers. I think it was Hugo? But basically, when the Nazis first came in, like, basically, Herman Goering was like, you're going to sell the company to me, and he was like, no, I'm not. And they took it off him. I think they may have killed him, in fact. Really? I would have to look it up. But yeah, they basically stole the Junkers company. And I can't remember if they just like messed up the guy who owned it or if they actually murdered him. Oh, but wow. they, they stole his company. Was he not an actor? No, he wasn't on board of it. And he wasn't having... That's why then. Yeah. Not being a Nazi was a difficult choice in Germany. Like, a, and that's... I was going to say, it's a shame he didn't like flee the country to also America because he could have helped us with aircrafts. I don't think they were going to let anyone... Like yeah. that, he was way too prominent. He was like huge, successful businessman. Like the Junkers Corporation was like the biggest aircraft manufacturer in Germany. Yeah, shame, isn't it? So anyway, um, to go back to the land topic. So even if though, even if Hitler was right, radical socialist Hitler, even if they divided up all the land that Germany has and shared it out with the farming population, it would only be thirteen hectares per family. And as we said, they need 20 each to be viable. Simply because there are so many Germans working on the land. So the conclusion that the Nazis obviously reach is Germany must take more land and the place where it comes from is Eastern Europe. Yeah. There's a concept in German history called the Drangnach Osten, the drive to the east, which goes back way into the Middle Ages that Germany expands eastward into... The Slavic and Balkan, Balkan, uh, Baltic territory. Yeah. So even like on the Christ, on the Christmas special when we were talking, you know, a thousand years ago, we were talking about the expansion of the Holy Roman Empire yeah. eastward. Yeah. It's the same concept. So Hitler's consciously making a parallel to like these medieval and like Dark Age Germans expanding eastward. We're going to do the same thing. So the agricultural ministry. Um, estimated that they needed seven to eight million empty hectares to go on top of Germany's existing 34 million. Um, Quote from Dare, the agricultural minister, the natural areas for settlement by the German people is the territory to the east of the Reich's borders up to the Urals, bordered on the south by the Caucasus, Caspian and Black Sea. Wow, that's a distance. Yeah, that's basically (laughs) all of European Russia. That's everywhere from there, all the way. Yeah. So everything is that. That's the scale of ambition the Germans are thinking about. Also notice seven to eight million empty hectares. So what do you think that's implying for the people that currently live in those hectares? 
Well, they 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 were known for the scorched earth policy, weren't they? And that eastern front push as well. So there's a concept called uh, General Plan Ost, which was Germany's plan if they had won the war, and it basically implied the extermination or enslavement of the entire like Slavic population of Europe, basically to expropriate the land. So fast forward then to 1939-1940, and Germany has defeated Poland, right? Which is the first step in this expansion eastward. And so Poland between the wars was quite a bit bigger than modern Poland is. And they basically split it into three parts. Um, there was some territory which was annexed directly into Germany itself, especially the stuff that they'd lost after the First World War. Mm-hmm. Some stuff was handed over to the Soviet Union. because you have The to molotov Ribbentrop Pact. Exactly. That was the agreement, wasn't it? Exactly, yeah. Poland is split in with the Soviets. And the Soviets didn't have to lift a finger for that, did they? They just hadn't made the agreement. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so anyone who's, like, too optimistic about Stalin or the Soviet Union, they were fucking allied with the Germans. Like, yeah. don't try and make Stalin a hero. Mm. Um, but a, a slice of Poland in the middle would be made into a German puppet state that's known as the General Government. And this is kind of the centre of Poland, like, the area around Warsaw. Okay. Now, the General Government could not feed itself. It lost all of its best farmland, was lost to be added into Germany and it got to, and all like population was like shuffled into the general government like undesired population Jewish and Polish which meant that the food for the general government had to be provided by the German Reich itself so they're providing the food to this like defeated people that they see as inferior mm. so there was kind of a racial hierarchy in the general government obviously Germans at the top Jewish people at the bottom, which is about two and a half million, and ten million Poles in the middle. The governor installed is a guy named Hans Frank, and I'm going to give you a quote about the food situation there from him. He said, I am not interested in the Jews. Whether they get any fodder to eat is the last thing I'm concerned about. I am only interested in the Poles insofar as I see them as a reserve of labour. <laughs> Fucking hell, okay. Yeah. So... By 1940, they have to introduce rationing because there isn't enough food. Now, you were kind of a fitness guy. How many calories does a person need? Um, well, it depends what they're doing, but I would say if you live like a modern sedentary life, a man can do about 2,000 if you just sat behind your desk, like mm. not exercising. If you live like an average day and you've got like a walk and a commute and a dog walk or something, or you're going about, probably about 2,500. If you're working hard, though, if you're lifting or your, you know, like physical labour all day, you can hit the like five thousand calorie mark quite okay. easily. Yeah, quite easily. I've done that loads of times. Didn't know if you're working, if you're working really hard and you got a sweat on, yeah, it's like marathon runners. Like they they mm. they go into the thousands of calories. Tennis players, I've read that so a lot of tennis players have about ten k calories in on match days. Oh wow. Yeah. So. The, uh, the the racial categories in the general government were assigned calories based on nationality. <laughs> Fucking hell, guy. Germans would get 2,600 calories worth of food. Nice, yeah. Day. Polish people would get 900. <sighs> That's not enough. Jewish people would get 360. Fuck. So that's like, what, one quarter to one fifth of what you need. 300, that's not even a sandwich. 360. <laughs> and then, you it's know, not even a Tesco's meal, Dale, bro. <laughs> and then being expected to work and labour yeah yeah oh my god no wonder they all died yeah so this is like starvation yeah that, that would have exactly. happened rapid as well this is like one big thing to understand with the holocaust and Nazi genocide is that I, I mentally have the image of the trains and the gas chambers but plenty of people just literally starved and worked to death mm. like you don't have to do very much if you're giving people less than 400 calories a day and making them work but you're making someone working even with 900 calories or that. Yeah. So this is deliberate policy by the Germans to exterminate people in Poland as early as 1940. Mm. And I bet the nutrition was terrible in those, like, 900 or 300 calories. I bet it was, like, just breads and stuff, so there was, like, yeah, no yeah. nutrition. Breads and potatoes, just stuff yeah. to keep. Yeah. So... So this is a bit of the context for how Germany ends up going into Eastern Europe. So if we kind of jump back to where we were at the end of the last episode then. So after the defeat of France, after with the Battle of Britain ongoing, 
And the situation Germany finds itself in in 1940-41 is they have defeated the French. This is an incredible military achievement. Mm-hmm. But as we also said, that they have started looting the hell out of the economies of Western Europe. They're not able to keep them functioning. They're not able to derive any benefit. And basically, by the end of 1940, the economies of countries like the Netherlands and Belgium and France have collapsed. Yeah. So essentially, like... <laughs> you may say it was a weird analogy, but like in my point last time of like grabbing a sheep and ripping its skin off rather than cutting the wall, it's basically what yeah, the <laughs> yeah, that is. So they literally got no benefit from it. Not really. Like they asset stripped. They asset stripped it. Yeah. that's what they did. But the consequence of this is that it drives Germany into a greater economic dependence on the Soviet Union. They have trade. to get more and more, exactly, more of their trade. And the oil's all coming from Romania as well, still, ain't it? Yeah, the oil was the, the only sources and they the have. The Romanians are on sidebar now, aren't they? Um, yeah, Romania effectively joined the Axis about 1941, I think. Mm-hmm. But I mean, Romania didn't really have a lot of choice. That's no, 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 the no, they didn't have a say, really. Um, so, yeah, depending on. Almost every resource they're getting from the Soviet Union, especially copper and also their other source of oil other than Romania, is the Soviet Union. And the Soviets understand that when it comes to this trade, they are the dominant partner and they start demanding more and more. And they're demanding, like, you know, German machine parts and machine tools and this sort okay. of thing in exchange for resources. So the logic of the loop of it is the Soviets are receiving German machine parts to get resources for Germany to be able to build an army to invade the Soviet Union. Yeah. <laughs> so they're building up the Soviet industrial base that they know they're going to have to fight, but they need the resources from the Soviets to be able to fight them. It's ridiculous, though. <laughs> so on the 31st of July, 1940, which is literally two weeks of the day after France has surrendered, Hitler begins ordering the preparations for the invasion of the USSR. So already he has decided... This trade situation is untenable. We must take the resources for ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's okay, yes, France has been defeated, but the British are still fighting. The American involvement in the war is growing. The German position in Europe is relatively weak. So, if they can conquer the Soviet Union, it serves the purposes of strengthening their position in Europe, builds up their economy, and prepares them for the real showdown, which is defeating Britain and the Americans. Mm-hmm. This is one of the ironies of World War Two: is Hitler did not see defeating the Soviet Union as, like, an end goal. That was a, a step a on step. the way to his real goal, defeating the Jewish menace of Britain and America. And this is one of the things that, like, just the, the loss of connection with reality. Like, you know, you like the greatest and largest war ever fought, and for Hitler, this was a step on the way. <laughs> this is a not Kaiser, and he's a fucking lunatic, that geezer. I've got I, like you just you have to accept it, don't you? Like these decisions can't be rationalised. No, they can only be understood in the concept of like if you fully, not like buy into, but like if you fully like put your head yourself in the in that like ideological worldview of Hitler, where things only make sense through the lens of the Jews control things. That's the only way you can even try to make sense of what he's doing because it's so irrational. Yeah. I heard he only had one ball as well. Is that true? The other was in the Albert Hall. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> There's like a nursery rhyme we used to sing as kids, any? Was that where it was from? Hitler, yeah, some, he only yeah. has one ball, the other. That's, a, that's a legitimate ball song. Yeah, yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah, there's a bit of English trivia for you, all the listeners. Yeah. So Did he actually like, have one ball, though? Uh, I'm genuinely not sure. I don't. I've heard that he did, but we're never going to know on the basis that Hitler's body was destroyed at the end of the war. So, yeah, and his balls. And or his balls. Eva <laughs> <laughs> Brown crying a single solitary tear to his single solitary ball. Yeah. Poor chap. So, yes, I mean, obviously there's like racial and ideological reasons why they invade the USSR, but also from a strategic point of view, it's a step into being able to have the resources to fight this war against the British and the yeah. Americans. So are they going to fight this war that they're planning for here, that they're building up to the same way they fought the French, or have they got like, do they do? Is the plan different this time? Have they learned from the mistakes? Or yeah, so I think the the planning is the opposite. 
So I mean, like in the in when we talked about the lead up to the invasion of France, I remember we talked about like you know, Hitler was seeing a rerun of the First World War, basically, like you know, building lots of artillery and that sort of stuff. For this, it's very conscious. We have to win this quickly. This is the only war Germany fights that is deliberately a blitzkrieg. Okay, so nineteen forty. So we're on Panzer Fours now. Panzer threes, Panzer fours, and also the thirty fives and the thirty eights from mm. the Czechoslovak division. Yeah, design. yeah, yeah. Those are your T T thirty fours. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, Panzer thirty five T and thirty eight T are Czech designs. The T indicates Czechish, which is the German for Czech. Oh, okay. Well, they whenever you see German, in there? whenever you see German stuff that has like the le- bracket then letter, that is, indicates captured from country. So F is French. A American, E British, like English. Okay. So yeah, that's whenever you're playing like games which deal with the more obscure. German that's not for all of them. They're like Tiger E. That's not. A that's quick. like indicating a model variant, but specifically yeah. bracket lowercase. Oh, the bracket in the brackets, yeah, because there's capital letter in it. Yeah, yeah. So if you're playing like you know War Thunder or Steel Division or whatever, that's what they indicate. It's like if it's a T, it's a Czech thing. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, the deliberate plan this time is to defeat the Soviets as quick as possible. And there's multiple layers as to why they do this. First of all, like we said, the strategic logic is the real war is against Britain and America. Therefore, defeat the Soviets as quickly as possible, releases the war resources to defeat the British, and you need to defeat the British quickly before they can build their air forces to be too powerful. So there's a deliberate decision to split the industrial base. The army suppliers will build a motorised army to fight the Soviets, but everything else is building up to fight an air war against the British and the Americans. Oh, okay. That makes sort of sense, to be fair. I sort of understand that. Yeah, but everything in the strategy assumes we will win quickly. Yeah, I suppose they've got the steel for it now. They're not struggling with the steel problems anymore, are they? They have more of the resources, so it's not such a problem. Um... Also, in terms of, like you were saying, like, was it a deliberate thing? You know, going into France, Hitler was kind of also very nervous and apprehensive. Like, you know, he didn't know what his army was capable of. Yeah. Now he's seen what the tanks can do. He's got a lot do. of confidence. Yes. Mm. It's like, okay, the Panzers can win wars. Yeah. And they can win them fast. Especially when it's followed in... Well, let's talk about Blitzkrieg for a sec, because I don't not think everyone's going to know what necessarily what Blitzkrieg actually means. Mm. Like, thoroughly, so... Essentially, the 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 idea the ideology behind Blitzkrieg it's like a, it's lightning war. It's very quick. You've got, so you you've got your, your tanks that come in hard, punch the holes very quick, and they're followed by men in trucks. Sorry, I would say people, but it's men. <laughs> <laughs> men in trucks, like and that get to the battlefield front, unload, and are deployed quick for combat. You don't have these swathes of marching men. Like it needs to happen quick, so using trucks and then also uh, motor, like you know, armored motorized, like the half track. I know they didn't have a lot of yeah. them, but they did have them, and that's a perfect vehicle for that kind of thing. So you can keep up with the tanks in it, and you guys are protected on the inside. Yeah, this is this is the idea of Blitzkrieg. It's like you know, rather than like a big front of like going forward, you focus on a specific point. You focus your tanks, you focus your air power, smash through, and keep going. So you punch a hole and then you exploit and you try and surround the enemy and. If you think like how the West fights now on fronts, is like quite a very similar tactic. Yeah, 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 but definitely. apart from we don't carry on, we stop. So you probe with your recon, don't you? Like they're probing with these massive pushes of like armored recon units and stuff like that, and then everything else sort of catches up and they keep punching holes and then catching up. Don't well, they? To be fair, like you know when it's when you think of like the invasion of Iraq. In oh, that's different. I meant like a modern like. Yeah, yeah, but I mean like from. The American strategy was like just smash their way to Baghdad. Yeah, that was gone. different, and the technology difference is completely different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm it's talking about like the the tactics that we would use for like a modern, like what Ukraine are using in Russia at the moment. Like what, because mm. we're training loads of dudes, and what they're learning is like how we would approach that. Yeah, that's the tactic. I mean, that's a, like a modern combat tactic. These spearheads and things like that, isn't it? But it's funny how yeah. it's we're talking about a hundred years ago. It's a similar tactic. But this is where it comes from, like, this is the innovation of it. Yeah. And, like, as much as, like, you know, we can shit on the Nazis and shit on Hitler as a terrible leader, and we should, because he was, 
people like Guderian knew what the fuck they were doing and their ideas. There were obviously there were people in the Red Army and the British Army and the American Army that had similar ideas. French Army as well, Charles de Gaulle. Of the idea of using the tanks, smash the enemy hard, hit their communication, confuse them. You don't have to kill all the soldiers if they don't know what's happening or where the orders are coming from. Yeah. This is the essence of like what we can call Blitzkrieg. So, following the defeat of France, Germany expands the army again. So they, when at the point of the defeat of France, there's 143 divisions. They expand it again to 180. Of those, 130 are earmarked for a war with the Soviet Union, leaving 50 for the ongoing wars in North Africa, in the Mediterranean, and to occupy all of the defeated countries of Europe. So the force that's earmarked for the invasion of the Soviet Union is 3 million men, the largest invasion in human history. Ever, yeah. And Hitler's really taken the lessons about the tanks to heart. There's a doubling of the tank divisions from 10 to 20. Okay. There is a doubling of the production of those key tanks you mentioned earlier, the Panzer III and IV, the 35T and the 38T. These, these were the tanks before they got ridiculous. Before they started yeah. getting a bit ridiculous. Yeah. There's a couple of good tanks after that, but then all the other ones are just ridiculous shitboxes, basically. Increasingly massive shitboxes that don't serve any purpose. But the three and the four are like exactly the right tanks for this period. Yeah. And they're also the 38T, fantastically good tank. So it's a huge increase on the firepower in the individual Panzer division. Because the ones that fought in France, the primary tanks were the Panzer I and Panzer II, which are like machine gun carriers. Yeah. Massive increase in firepower. 75 so mil on the uh, Panzer IV? Uh, short barreled 75 yeah. mil. That's a, that's a big improvement, though, from machine gun calibre. <laughs> yeah. The Panzer III becomes the main tank at this time. There's four different factories building Panzer III's. Um, which is a less efficient way of than having like you know a single production line, but it's a much quicker expansion and also gives some protection from uh, Allied bombing raids of the mm. factories. So they ramp up the production of the Panzer III. There's also huge new factories being built, new factories being converted, and a kind of key decision is they switch over completely to medium tanks. So then no more of the light tanks will be built. Everything's going to be Panzer III and Panzer IV. And this is going to remain the case basically until the end of the war. The Panzer IV will become the main tank later on. At this point, it's still an infantry support tank, but they realise this is a better platform. The Panzer III will be adapted into the uh, Stug III assault gun, which becomes Germany's most produced vehicle. Fantastic vehicle as well. Just looks stupid. Yeah. You know, when he talks about it. It's not. Doesn't look cool, does it? Doesn't look cool. But it, it's quite sensible from like Germany's perspective. You have a limited industrial base. Very efficient vehicle that has the maximising of gun and firepower. Yeah, no turret. Stug's a turretless vehicle. Um, there's there's about how many angles of degree? Probably they've probably got about thirty angle of de- of movement on the rifle, if that, without moving the whole vehicle. There's a bit of movement in it, but it's very low to the ground. It's a very powerful weapon, isn't it? It's really good. Yeah. It's, it's practical design. It gives you a lot of punch for what's in that package, like. Mm. So the Stug III becomes Germany's most produced vehicle over the course of the war. And by the end of the war, um, Germany has built just under 50,000 tanks, tank destroyers, and assault guns. So it's big numbers. The Stug III is one of the most produced vehicles of all time. So with this ramp up of the Wehrmacht, once again... We're up to the Wehrmacht refers to army, air force, and navy. By the way, not just the army. Mm-hmm. That's a thing that basically every World War Two documentary gets wrong. Wehrmacht is the entire military. Entire military gets to seven seven point three million men by the summer of nineteen forty one. Wow, out of a population of like eighty million total. With that, there's another two million men in training, and another three million. Three and a half million who are medically unfit for wars have been ruled out. Mm-hmm. Which leaves five and a half million men doing essential war work. So Germany now, for any expansion of the army, it's they're digging into the essential war workers. Yeah. Anyone extra they draw up is coming out of the economy. And it gets worse when you look at the uh, most productive age rates, like the 20 to 30 year olds. 85% of those are already in the military. Wow. So they're kind of their prime age men, they're almost tapped out and the war hasn't even begun against the Soviet Union. There's 660,000 teenagers coming of age every year. 
Um, but it's clear that's not that many teenagers year on year. Any yeah. expansion of the Wehrmacht from here on out has to come from the economy, and there is no reserve if this invasion of the Soviet Union fails. Mm. There's nothing extra to expand into. So even before the war has really begun, the land war in earnest, Germany's tapped out its manpower. Yeah. So it's like go for broke, ain't it? Go for broke, exactly. That's been Hitler's logic since like 1938. Go for mm. broke every opportunity. Now, we said before, like, Germany has some real constraints on resources and its victory in the West in 1940 has helped a lot. They captured the stockpiles of, you know, oil and rubber from the French and the Dutch and Belgian and so on. But even with all of that they've captured, they're forecast to run out of oil and rubber by the end of 1941, if there is more fighting. So one of the solutions available is to create synthetic rubber and synthetic oil which they do with derivatives from coal production, basically. You liquidise coal somehow. I don't know, I'm not a chemist. Mm. There's a guy, I think we mentioned him way back at the start, a guy named Carl Crouch, who works for IG Farben, the chemical giant. Yeah. Um, by this point, actually, he's the chair of the board. And he has also been appointed the head of chemical production in the German government. That's quite a tall... Especially the amount they're going to use them. Yeah, exactly. And there's also this, like, the, the mixture of the companies and the Nazi government, like, just completely intertwined. Yeah. And then big players like Porsche and BMW and Daimler and IG Farben, there's no separating the company from the government. Like, yeah. it's one of the same. Carl Crouch, then, his first priority is aviation fuel. They're going to need aircraft fuel because Germany, as we've said, oil is extremely limited, only imports from Romania or Russia. So his focus then for their new synthetic oil is going to be aviation fuel. And what he decided he needed was a site that's close to the oil field, uh, to the coal fields that have been captured from Poland around Krakow and Upper Silesia. These are big coal producing areas even today. So he chooses a site in a small town named Auschwitz. And in this town there's already a small SS prison camp, but next door to it he builds an industrial complex to become a, a chemical production centre. Both of these sides will grow up alongside each other, but the uh, chemical plant will become far bigger than the concentration camp next door. The concentration camp, of course, famously will grow into be a, a centre for extermination. You know, it's the place of the gas chambers. But for all of the people that are not immediately sent to the gas chamber, they are sent to work in the chemical plant, next door even from the beginning it, the facilities were built by slave labour taken from the concentration camp uh, there's many different plants that were built to produce different chemicals IG Farben built their new rubber facility and this on its own would cost the lives of 30,000 people who would be worked to death just to build the damn thing fuck this huge complex which was much, much bigger than, you know, this largest and most famous concentration camp. It would produce huge amounts of chemicals of all types for Nazi Germany, including Zyklon B, which, which is, is the poison, yeah. the gas that was used to kill Jewish people in the gas chambers. Fuck no. The average life expectancy working in that plant was three months. What? Yeah. What the fuck were they doing to them? Just... You're not feeding them, working them hard in a chemical environment with no safety gear. Hell. Aside from like you know the random violence. Yeah, because they wouldn't have had all the extraction and stuff that we have today, <laughs> would they? Exactly. No, they're just like breathing in the chemical. Yeah, yeah, in a chemical factory as well. You'd be fucked, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd yeah. basically just walking in probably get like cancer and tumors and stuff instantly from all the fumes and stuff. Yeah, it's Ugh. horrifying to speculate. We'll come back to this a bit later because that fuel is going to be important. But, as a side note, those plant buildings and factories that were built by the Nazis on the blood and bones of Jewish people, they survived the war. And they survive to this day. And today, the rubber facility built by IG Farben at Auschwitz is the third largest producer of synthetic rubber in Europe. Well, it's still there. It's still there, it's still in production. How's that allowed to be a thing? <laughs> it's still there. Who owns it? Uh, it's some Polish company. 
But yeah, they still produce synthetic rubber in that factory. Oh, I feel right to me that though. Today. Should we do a trivia break? Yeah, yeah. What's your favourite, Ross? What is your favourite? Tank. Full. No, mm. I know the answer to that, because I'd say T-34. I'd say favourite tank of World War II period that's not the T-34. That's the question I'm going to give you, because I know your answer's T-34. Uh, T-34 that... is a great, is a Russian tank. I'm going to go with the Churchill. Yeah? Oh, okay. British heavy tank... Horribly outdated in some ways, but also like really good at what it did. What getting like shot and nothing happening? Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. And like later in the war, uh, there was a variant with a flamethrower building called the Churchill Crocodile, yeah. and the Germans would surrender to on the site of the tank. Churchill Crocodile. So basically, how do you describe it? It's like these massive. Just Google the Churchill tanks. They look cool. It looks like a World War One tank that someone's glued a turret to. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Like, they're armoured the to fuck as well, aren't they? They were well known for being, like, really tough. Yeah, they're more armoured than the Tiger. But when the Germans first captured them in their first use, they thought that the British had some, like, outdated tanks they were trying to get rid of. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Favourite tank? Favourite World War II tank? Oh, Favourite World War II tank... You know what? I'm gonna still go with the tiger. Ooh. I just love them. I just love them. They, I know they're not. And they just love them. They're cool as tanks. They just, just look cool. They're cool. They're cool tanks, man. They're tough. They're cool. Yeah, they had fucking lots of problems with the mechanics, and they had a lot of issues with the alloys that made up the like, um, like the drive cogs on the truck <laughs> on the tracks, because obviously they didn't. They had massive fucking problems with material. Like they skimped on the alloys quite a lot. So the front drive train that basically drives the whole track around the wheels, mm. like the material is just too soft basically. So you just <laughs> shit all the time. Okay. So you just lose all drive basically. Oh fucking! They just there like spinning out, just revving on nothing. Like yeah, so, yeah, basically. So you'd be like bombing along, and then like you'd be imagine engaging. Like oh, you've got like fifteen T thirty fours rushing at me, which is probably quite <laughs> realistic to be fair, because that's how Russia did it. They were, they had, had millions and millions of tanks, didn't they? Basically, yeah. just charged up. But imagine you sit there it's like, oh, we've got no drive left. Like we can't move anywhere, and people are shooting at us. You just bail, wouldn't you? You'd bail. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think I've got to go for the Targa, mate. It is, it is the ultimate bad guy tank. It's it just, is, and it's it? cool. It is. There's a couple of there's a couple of others I like. I like the American Shermans and variations of them. They're pretty cool. Uh, what's that little British light tank that got on War Thunder? It's like a tier one. Valentine, Crusader. No. Yeah, that's a cool tank. Crusader's a cool tank. It looks yeah. cool. Looks yeah, pointy. Yeah. Around the turret, it looks a bit pointy, doesn't it? Very sloped. Yeah. So in this situation, then, how do these two teams match up against each other? Obviously, we've literally just been talking about the tanks, so how do mm. they match up, like, on a scale? So, I mean, in terms of pure military on the ground, the Red Army total is something like four or five million men. In terms of their forces in Europe, it's 2.9 million. So they're actually outnumbered by the German Army going into Operation Barbarossa. Yeah, but we're not, we've not talked about their manpower caps yet, have we? <laughs> yeah. So, on on day one, the Red Army is slightly outnumbered. Also, the Red Army has the biggest tank fleet in Europe. In the world, actually. The American tank fleet is basically nothing, so Europe equals the world at this point. Yeah. <laughs> but it's mostly T-26, which is a copy of a British interwar tank called the Vickers 6 ton. So it's... Oh. Long in the tooth, yeah. yeah. It goes back to the early 30s. So it's not the most technically advanced piece of equipment out there? No. It ain't going to so stand up to the Panzer IVs? No. I mean, like, the, the T-26 has been fighting in the Spanish Civil War. It's the same era as, like, you know, Panzer II. Yeah, okay. Red Air Force, again, biggest air force in the world, but similar story. A lot of it's outdated kit. Flip side of that, some of the Soviet kit that's just been tested out in a not very successful war against Finland is very impressive. This is the T-34 medium tank and the KV-1 heavy tank. Vastly superior to anything in the German arsenal. 
Okay. But this represents a very small part of the Red Army's kit, and also that vastly superior has the asterisks on paper, because Soviet production quality is dog shit. Mm. So the tanks do not perform in the early wars well as they should do on paper at least. In terms of, as you just mentioned, the manpower advantage, so Germany's population total is 80 million-ish people, 83 million. So that's like 40 million men. The Soviet population, it's hard to tell because the numbers are super inaccurate. And part of the reason they're inaccurate is Stalin was carrying out genocides against his own people, notably the Ukrainians, who were deliberately starved in an artificial famine called the Holodomor. And then the officials kind of tried to hide that. So it's a little bit iffy with numbers mm. but the Soviet population was at minimum 170 million so two to one bit of a difference in the game there then <laughs> yeah and as you've just already alluded to the German population is mobilised for already the soldiers in the army are the soldiers they're going to have mm. the Red Army is in a peacetime strength they haven't mobilised and that's still five million men under arms so Obviously, there's a lot of potential in the Soviet Union. Also, it shouldn't need explaining, but the Soviet Union was big, like 15 20% of the world's landmass, much bigger than modern day Russia. Absolutely huge. A lot of that is in, uninhabited as well. It is. But it means but you've got the space. You've got that space also, if you need it. This, this is true, but also in the run up to the war, um, Stalin and the communist leadership have made a deliberate decision to build new industrial cities behind the Ural Mountains. Mm-hmm. So in the like the western part of Siberia, outside of Europe. So they had made a deliberate effort to build up an industry that would survive even if European Russia was lost. Yeah. And this is something that like in the First World War didn't exist. Like in the First World War, urban industrialised Russia was Western Russia and that was what came in danger immediately when the war started. Mm-hmm. The Soviet Union has like a second level industrial capacity, even if its key cities are lost. Are they still there, I wonder? Some of it is, definitely. Some of those cities in the Cold War period were like closed cities, you couldn't enter or exit them. And they were specifically built around. What's a closed city? I've never heard of closed city. Yeah, so there were some cities in Siberia where they're building specific things like aircraft engines, for example, and no one could enter or exit that city. Oh, wow. And everyone was pretty much in employed directly or indirectly by the, the military factory. That was a thing in the Soviet Union, like in, in Siberia. Okay. Fucking hell. It's a bit weird, isn't it? It's amazing what you can do when you're a fucking oppressive dictatorship. In yeah, ways. and you're crippled with paranoia. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's... Russia is big and there's a lot of people. Soviet Union, sorry, I... We need, we need to be careful not to say Russia when we mean Soviet Union. Yeah, we're talking... Whenever we're talking about... The, the Soviet Union or Russia. If we say Russia, we mean the Soviet Union. Yeah. But I want to consciously avoid that because, like, you know, many millions of people who fought and died in the Red Army were not Russians. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, the Soviet Union, obviously, massive, many people. For the German army, this presents a serious challenge of how they're going to fight. Because you compare it to the distances in Western Europe, like occupying Belgium, you can do it in a day. Yeah, it's not exactly a big place, is it? So then you have to start getting into the thing of how far can your vehicles travel? Well, especially through that back country of the USSR. Exactly. Like, the infrastructure's not, good, not there. The roads, yeah, it's not all there, is it? The, like, the roads are mostly dirt tracks, which will turn to mud when it starts raining or when the snow melts. The Germans understood their trucks have a maximum driving range of 300 kilometers, right? After which you're using more fuel to transport any fuel that you're carrying than you're actually, like, you know, delivering. Yeah. So they have maximum effective range 300 kilometers. If you have a look at a map of the Soviet Union and lay 300 kilometers over it... Don't get you far. You don't get very far. <laughs> so... The Germans came up with a strategy, which was they would split their truck pool in half. So one half would move up with the tanks, the other half would stay on the border. Okay. So they're ferrying stuff 300 kilometres, pick it up another 300 kilometres. So you have a maximum penetration depth of 600 kilometres that you can do comfortably. If fighting goes past that, you have a real problem to supply it. That's what trains are for, isn't it? Ooh, come to the trains. So... 
Germany are conscious that they must destroy the Red Army in that first 500 kilometers, which conveniently, there's two rivers in the Soviet Union, Dnieper and Dvina, which almost meet each other and they basically go like north to south across the whole country. So it gives them a hard border to aim for. Like, remember we talked about the defeat of France, that they had just had to aim for the English Channel, because mm. then they could pin the French army against the Channel. Same idea here. Pin the Red Army against the rivers and destroy it. If they don't do that, if the Red Army escapes beyond that river, then they will have to stop, and this is where the trains come in. So what they will need to do is they will need to build up railheads 500 kilometers deep, so then they can use trains to take supplies from Poland up to the new railheads they've built, right? Problem. Soviet railways... Different. Dog shit and different. Yeah, different size, I bet. Different gauge. Different gauge, different gauge exactly. Different gauge, and also nowhere near dense enough to furnish this many trains that are needed to go mm. backwards and forwards. They need a conversion kit so they can convert to different rail cells. They did have things that they did to, for conversion, but it still slows you the fuck down. Oh, massively, yeah, yeah. But also, just simply, they did not have enough rail lines. Like, the density of rail lines in Western Europe compared to the density in, like, yeah. Russia, different. So, even going into this, the German army knew if they do not defeat Russia, the Soviet army within 500 kilometers, they are not going to be able to supply all of their forces if they have to advance and like keep fighting after 500 kilometers. Mm. So they already built into their own planning and understanding was that only 33 divisions, tank and motorized, would receive full supply. The other 97 divisions, three quarters of the army, would get whatever we can manage. And this is before the war started. Their own planning accepts this as the consequence. Nah, this is silly, not it? Like, can you imagine, like, a British or American general presenting that as a plan today? Yeah. And it gets better. So those 97 divisions that are not motorised or tank, how do they move? Right, if they're not motorised or tank. Yeah, if they're not motorised or tank, how do they move? Foot and horse, any? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Foot and horse like it's 1800 in your fucking mm-hmm. Napoleon. For this invasion, they would need 750,000 horses. They ordered 15,000 horse-drawn wagons. Like, it's the fucking, you know, American-covered wagons going into the West. (laughs) There's two vastly different armies happening here. Like, one small modern army and one from 100, 200 years earlier. Now, there's some reasons the Germans could be confident in what they're doing. One is in terms of GDP per capita, like the development of the countries. Oh, yeah, we've, I know we've talked about Germany weren't there, the, the strongest, but versus USSR at this point, I bet they exactly. got front there. Two and a half times yeah. GDP per capita. Well, we all know like, war is one bond, Mona. It's like whoever's got the most money to make the most stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think this is like, if we had a subtitle for this series, it would be like war by spreadsheet. Because everything yeah. we've done to comes down to, again and again, just simple numbers of production. Mm. Um. This is part of the German thinking. We are so much more advanced than them. Also, German racial thinking. We are superior to them. Yeah. And after the victory over France, the assumption that the Wehrmacht is so much better than everybody else. We've beat the French, the British, the Belgians, the Dutch. Yeah. What can the Red Army do? That's an army of workers and peasants. What can they hope to do? So the assumption within the German leadership and from Hitler is we will fight the first battles... The Red Army will be smashed to pieces, there will be no resistance, and so we get through that first 500 kilometres, and after that... (laughs) (laughs) Giddy up! We're riding to Moscow! (laughs) Heading west for gold. (laughs) But, like, the concept, there'll be no resistance after that. If we can trap and destroy the entire Red Army, there'll be nothing to fight back. So again, you see all of this German planning, it relies on the best case scenario being the only scenario. Yeah, yeah, the only option. Yeah. <laughs> I hope this goes out, otherwise we're not, we're fucked. <laughs> exactly. Anything doesn't go right, Germany's in serious problems. And, you know, there were smart people in the German military, they understood that. So the German army for the Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union, is split into three army groups. Army Group Centre is going to be the group that has the biggest job of destroying the Red Army. 
And the guy in charge of that, Field Marshal Fedor von Bock, he was like, this is bullshit. We're not going to be able to destroy the Red Army against the Deep. But what happens if we don't? And he insisted on having war games, and they showed if the Red Army got past the Dnieper uh, Divina line, then what would happen is a long, drawn-out war that Germany would lose. So even the guy who's in charge of doing the mission is like, we can't do this, and we're going to lose. Mm. It gets better. He was how, as well. He, he was dead on. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> What a fucking bunch of cunts, man. I can't believe they just like... It's... I know every episode I get, I'm like, I say this, but it's just mind-boggling, <laughs> that fucking stupid. It is. Like, these decisions, and it? Like, surely, you could... At this point, he might have been able to be in, like... That's enough, I reckon. I reckon we've probably got enough for a bit. You know, give it ten years, maybe we're going to be super... Te- and we could try again, you'd think, maybe. If I was Hitler, and I was on about expanding Germany, from this point, I'd be like, right... We need to appease everyone now so we can keep hold of this. And then in like 10 years, we'll smash the Germans. But then if you're Hitler in this, you're like, okay, if we're going to sit here for 10 years, the British and the Americans are just going to bomb the shit out of us. We can't hold on. Mm. We're going to lose an air war. And like everyone expects that the war will be fought in the air primarily. Yeah. The real war. So, and also, again, it's like, Every single time we come to it, it's like, with Hitler, you have to only... The only way you can understand him is look at him in this racial worldview. It's the only way you can... But he's so <laughs> wrong, though, that's the thing. Like, he's wrong. Like, and that's the fucking undoing. Like... You yeah, if you base your entire worldview on a conspiracy theory and the conspiracy <laughs> theory isn't true, you're pretty fucked. Yeah, that's why I'm going to be fucked if the earth don't turn out to be flat, mate. No, but it is. Based everything on that. It definitely is. <laughs> so to close that, I'm going to give a quote from Franz Halder, who is the chief of the army staff. And in his diary on January 31st, 1941, he wrote, Barbarossa, purpose not clear. We do not hurt the English. Our economic base is not significantly improved. Risk in West should not be underestimated. It is possible that Italy might collapse after the loss of her colonies and we get a southern front in Spain, Italy and Greece. If we are, then tied up in Russia, a bad situation will be made worse. Four months later, five months later, on the 22nd of June 1941, Germany invaded the Soviet Union. Everyone was telling them not to do it. Uh But after France, the army could not turn around and say, you're wrong, because they'd said that in France and... He was right. Yeah, well, he looked out. He looked out massively, <laughs> and the French fucking defeated themselves. Uh, I've been reading a book called Defeat and Division by Douglas Porch, it's about the French army, and if you want to be frustrated by something, read that, and the failures <laughs> of the French to fucking do anything correctly. Fuck you, though. We don't have many French listeners, do we? That's a rarity for us. Yeah, yeah, we don't get many French listeners. So we can slag them off loads, basically. Ah, you wankers! <laughs> yeah, I don't think we've ever had a French listener. Oh, but yeah, so then we'll leave it there for that. But it's like you say, it's just... So many things were obvious this will fail. Everyone sends it like, this will fail. And Hitler's like, we're going to do it anyway. And then it does fail. But millions of people have to fucking die. To prove the fucking point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just millions of people had to die. Fucking hell. Mate, it's unreal, ain't it? It is unreal. So much loss of life over one man's absolute stupid uh I'm just going to, like, check out one thing. I saw today some of Hitler's paintings. Oh, nice. Because you know he, like, he wanted to be an arse student, right? Yeah. They're fucking well, he was terrible. An student, right? Yeah, he was. Yeah. He was rejected by... Yeah. The, the academy. By the Jews, that's what by I'm saying, yeah, by a Jewish yes, exactly. professor. They're fucking terrible. They're really <laughs> bad. They're like, you know when, you, when your mum gets into painting and you like, she does some like, watercolours and you're like, oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. They look like that. They exactly look like that. <laughs> fucking like, flat, the perspectives are fucked, the shadows are everywhere and stuff. You're like, no, yeah, I bet I everyone am... was telling him though that they were great. I bet everyone oh, told him Oh, they're so good, Adolf, so wonderful. Yeah, wonderful <laughs> picture. <laughs> nice. Oh, then I suppose we'll wrap it up there then, brother. That was good. It weren't too heavy, to be fair. It weren't too heavy. It went well, that did We well. can draw it, apart from, like, you know, the bit about 
the rubber. Yeah. Yeah. Right then. Well, I hope all the listeners have a fantastic 2024. Uh, yeah. I would say hit us up on the, the Twitter, but it's X now. And then you can hit us up on OnlyFans. Yep, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Foz's OnlyFans. It's... The only fans where he's paid not to produce content. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, if you have any questions, any input you'd like to add to the show, anything, if you have answers to any of the questions which you say, we'll look into that and then we never do, you can get us at uh, history at gmail.com. You can hit us up on X for the time being at Makers of History. We don't have anything else. No. Carry a pigeon. <laughs> If you've enjoyed the show, then please give us a rating and a review. Tell your friends about us. You know, Spotify, we've got only five-star reviews. Really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, hang on, let me bring it up. No one's no one's annoyed with us yet, Spotify. Hang on, let me bring it up. Bro. Fucking fill the silence, quick, quick, quick. <laughs> <laughs> Spotify winning it here. Hey, iTunes people, where are you at? Where's your five stars? Here we go, right. 13 reviews. Five stars. That's probably all our friends. Beautiful. But that's okay. That's fine. That's, that's you know, your parents, my mum, yeah. our wives. My dog. <laughs> <laughs> right then, wrap it up then. See you later, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.